Hi, and welcome to Communicating Climate Change, a podcast dedicated to helping you do exactly that. I'm Dickon, and I'll be your host as we dig deep into the best practices and the worst offences, always looking for ways to help you and me improve our abilities to engage, empower, and ultimately activate audiences on climate-related issues. This episode features a conversation with disaster communication specialist, Dr. Dennis John Sumilo. It was recorded in June 2023. In his work, Dennis investigates the intersection of pre-disaster communication and community engagement in the context of geographic isolation and socioeconomic inequalities. Examining these issues has helped him design multimodal and gamified learning tools for supplementing disaster risk reduction classes in the Philippines. His new book, entitled Engaging Isolated Communities in Disaster Preparation and Communication in the Philippines, is published through Spring and Nature, and it explores social power, relationships, and experiences as avenues to community engagement in pre-disaster communication. Amongst other things, Dennis and I discussed a range of real-world audiences and the ways that their respective experiences with disasters impact their communications needs. We delved into the roles of trust and power in disaster communication, and the value of a media spotlight when it comes to disaster recovery and relief. So, let's get on with it. This is Communicating Climate Change with Dennis John Sumilo. The first question is one that I ask all of my guests, and that is, from your perspective, how can communication help mitigate the worst effects of climate change in the first place? I think the biggest problem with climate change really is its invisibility. I mean, the cost of climate change is invisible. That's why it's somehow difficult for the majority to understand what climate change really is and how do we really combat this particular issue right now. So I think what communication can help actually is to give face to this issue more than just, you know, uh, creating discussions on how to mitigate the impacts of climate change. Really, we need to give face to this problem right now because for some people, if they cannot see the cost, they will never solve that particular problem. And that's when communication comes in. Based on your experience, I wonder if you could sort of outline what some of the key principles or best practices are for effectively communicating with communities that are impacted by or at risk of being impacted by disasters or other similar crises? I think we have to put it out there that um, disasters or let's say natural hazards really are just byproducts of what's happening with our climate right now, that's climate change. The best practice really is to provide multiple um, channels, multimodal pathways of explaining to people what this problem is and how do we combat it. However, we also have to look at the other side of the communication spectrum. From the receiver's perspective, can they really access all of these channels? If your target audience have problems accessing these particular tools, then it can be very problematic. That's what I want to highlight in most of the studies I do, because I typically engage with communities classified as geographically isolated and disadvantaged areas. It's not just being marginalized. They are literally out there. There's no public transportation available. And access can be very problematic. For example, in an island area near the Pacific Ocean, it was difficult for them 
to to fend for themselves during Haiyan because they are separated from the main island. There are no water ambulance during that time. They don't have access to electricity 24-7. They cannot charge their phones. They only have transistor radios. The only thing they have are their previous experiences with other typhoons. So they have to fend themselves. And when I talked to the local government in the main island, they were very worried because this particular island, though there are only a few people living in that area, they are prone to all of the possible impacts of a super typhoon like Haiyan. When they were given a green light to go to that particular island, they found that all of them are safe. They created their own ways of fending themselves. They created their own evacuation centers. Some of the areas that were somehow identified as evacuation area are not really safe for them. So they, as locals, found a way <laughs> to relocate themselves while um, the typhoon is going into um, the country. So that in particular is an example of no matter how you design your communication tools to reach more people, not everyone can actually have access to this particular tool. It was actually interesting when I was uh, doing my fieldwork in that particular island, I was kind of worried because I need to go back to the main island and I was looking at the sea and I was told that by this particular time, it would be very difficult to cross. And then the locals were like, nah, just look at the waves and look at the movement of the wind right now. You'll be safe. How might the principles that we're sort of discussing about, um, you know, overcoming technological barriers and geographical barriers, how can these kinds of principles apply to communicating with communities affected by climate change? I would like to compare two areas that I've visited in the past years. I've already talked about the island area. There is also an upland area where I visited. This particular community do not have any historical experience of a strong typhoon or earthquake hitting them. So unlike the island area, already knowledgeable in what to do with or without the aid of the local government. This particular upland area, this is the first time that they've encountered a strong typhoon. You could not find the kind of local knowledge that I've seen in the island area. However, there are parallels in terms of how the community works. In general, um, social relationships and social power plays an important role in community development in relation to disaster management. If we look at social power uh, relationships and add on the historical experiences or no, uh, no experience at all, then we are actually tapping on what's innate in the community rather than, you know, a, a top-down kind of dynamic where the national government is selling you this and that. I'm not saying that's a bad thing. 
there, there is always a, a top-down type of information when it comes to disaster management. We cannot avoid that one. But at the local level, you should not consider them as an empty glass that you needed to fill in because they already have that particular um, strength that you just have to identify and hone in order for you to apply these concepts in communicating with them. For instance, in the upland area, there is a mixture of indigenous peoples living there, as well as Catholics. So it's it's a mix and match, unlike in the island area. So you're expecting answers when you talk to those indigenous peoples, like what's the cause of an earthquake? And then they tell you that giants living under this particular mountain got mad because we did this and that. When you talk to local governments handling disaster management, they tell you the same thing, that you know the indigenous peoples have this concept of uh, myths and legends that causes typhoons. However, if we combat it head on, it might be perceived as an attack of the culture and tradition by the indigenous people. So if you really want to be very scientific about disaster management, you can, but you might not be able to tap into the traditional knowledge of these people who've lived in these areas longer than you have. So they've understood how this place works. You know, you just have to find the parallel in science and tradition. Try to find their commonalities and approach this type of instructing people what to do or how to prepare um, by combining culture, tradition, and science. I love that whether you whether you think that the uh, giants under the mountain are angry or whether you are watching uh, the news that has you know detailed graphics about the topography, the result is the same. Go here, be safe. Yeah, and often uh, these people are are tagged as hard-headed people or people who never listens. Because if you are someone training them on how to prepare, if you really did not tap what's in the locality already or what's the local knowledge and you are simply telling them what you've known for the past 20 30 years so you are invalidating their existence and their now knowledge just because you just want to say these are fault line guys these are movements here rather than the giants that you're talking about so that's common misconceptions that just because they're isolated They're geographically isolated, literally, and they do not have access to basic education. Some of them don't know how to read even, but they have this rich cultural background and tradition that can actually explain what's been going on in the context of disaster management. What role does trust play in effective communication with communities at risk of being affected by disasters? If we talk about trust, we have to go back to power. At the community level, there are two possible sources of power, and that can be, you know, uh, you are either nominated, elected to that particular position, or the social power that you have influence in your community. The use of power 
is really an, a double-edged sword that either creates, builds trust, or destroys trust. It depends on your credibility as a person in that community. If someone who holds power goes to your house, knock on your door, and tell you personally that you need to evacuate, they'd follow you. Rather than a type of information that is handed down from one person to the next, most often people do not really believe that one. But unless someone who holds power goes to you directly and tell you exactly what to do, then people would often act on the message. So really, trust is connected heavily on social power. And social trust is built over time. Even those who are working for the government actually are often not trusted because of the top-down type of uh, information dissemination. But if there is um, interpersonal type of communication involved, you are giving importance to each person. And by giving importance to each person, you are actually trying to build the trust between you and your immediate community. And if there's uh, trust between you and your immediate community, the more reason that they will listen to you, whether you are elected or not. If we can harness both uh, sources of trust into disaster management, then we will be able to save more lives later on, no matter how small the community is or how big the community is. Just uh, out of curiosity, and since we have the kind of example of this isolated community, who in that community, for example, would be some trusted voices? In the Philippines, there is, a, at the village level, there is a village captain that is the lowest government position. This person is elected. And then the village is divided into different zones. And each zone will have a particular zone leader, not just for disaster management, but for everything, whether it's going to be a sports fest of the village or what. There's this one person who's in charge of that particular zone. Now, um, at that particular level, there is certain level of um, distrust in a sense, because often the top-down dissemination of information ends at that particular position. The village captain, say, receives several flyers or information, and then these things are handed down to the zone leaders. You cannot really say that people immediately would trust their zone leaders that these information will be disseminated. So uh, there's always this thinking of um, information hoarding, that those who are closely connected to that zone leader will only have access to that information. Based on my conversations with them, they'd rather have this information displayed in a, in a public space rather than the zone leader taking it with him or her to, to their house. So, and they will not have any idea whoever gets access to that particular tool. But if we're talking about social power, those who have leadership or influence in the community without any position at all, then they immediately believe that person. 
How must communicators approach different audiences, such as communities of risk of being affected by disasters versus those who are already being impacted by disasters? What are the differences and the nuances there that we have to juggle? Literature actually would say that experience is also a double-edged sword. Those who have a lot of experience tend to disregard the possible impact of a natural hazard. So too much experience may result to uh, no action coming from people. And at the same time, uh, lack of experience will also result to no action. The way for us communicators to approach different types of audiences would really be to look at their individual settings, context, then we can approach the way we communicate with people by sector. Some local governments approach disaster management by sector because they acknowledge that each sector will have different needs, aspects like gender, um, disability. The senior citizen, they strategize different types of communication tools. In one area, they, they use theater, role-playing to involve the kids in the meaning-making process and how do they make sense with the experiences they've had. Instead of directly facing the, the problem, they package it into something like education and entertainment at the same time. Rather than just accepting what's been handed down to them from the national government and then you know, spreading it out by just you know, giving out flyers. When in fact, the people living in that particular community doesn't even know how to read. And that's true. When I went there, there were a lot of signages and posters and flyers. But when I talked to people, people can't read. And they don't understand the international symbols for, for emergency and hazards. And nobody's explaining it to them. So they find different ways um, to capture different sectors in the community. The only problem is, going back to the small number, these communities are populated by a few people only. Oftentimes, they get neglected. Their experiences will not be classified as a disaster. By textbook definition, um, the inability of a society to function as the usual status quo. But it's just one community, let's say 100 households. If ever they will be impacted by, let's say, a big earthquake, it's just a calamity and it will never be a disaster. Because of the sheer number, they will not be spotlighted by media. So no help coming from outside will be received by these communities. Because we've experienced that before when Haiyan happened. Those areas where media men were deployed to got all the help. But there are smaller areas around those areas that did not receive any help just because they were not spotlighted. What's the single most important aspect of communication that we should be paying attention to in our communications work? More than identification of the audiences, I think we need to really look at how these messages are received. It is not just enough to disseminate. 
we need to understand how the information impacted the day-to-day activities of everyone because that is the only measurement uh, of a campaign success for me. Uh, although it's difficult to quantify and sometimes funding agencies love numbers too much, they just want to see how many were disseminated or how many people attended these things. But rather, there's no follow-through as to the impact of that information to these communities. To not just look at the numbers, but to look at the actual impact of it longitudinally, because definitely you cannot just see an immediate impact of any campaign. What's the biggest mistake that you see communicators make when attempting to engage the public on climate change issues? I think we need to find or develop ways of measuring our campaigns. More curiosity in terms of developing methodologies of measurement, uh, success measurement of any campaign. It was eye-opening talking to Dennis about this topic. I really enjoyed it, and I hope you did too. But what in particular stuck with you from this conversation? What will you take from it and apply to your own work or carry forward in some way? For me, it's the absolute importance of understanding local power dynamics. One might assume that providing important information to elected officials would lead to effective dissemination amongst the community, but the reality could be very different, both in terms of whether the information is made available at all, or whether the audience takes it seriously based on their trust of the person disseminating it. I recommend listening to my chat with Mary Dupar for more information on this topic. Next, I've dwelt long and hard on Dennis's explanation of communities affected by disasters not getting help simply because they didn't get any media spotlight. It echoes similar situations from many other contexts, like activism, for example, and only emphasizes the importance, nay, responsibility of communicators to help shed light where it's needed. For more on telling stories from the front lines of the climate crisis, check out previous episodes with Melis Vigameshe and Umbong Akifok Watsafak. So those are the things that I'll be thinking about. But how about you? What did you hear? What will you be taking with you into your communications endeavours? Thanks to Dr. Dennis John Samilo for sharing his time and expertise with the show. It was great. You can find some links to relevant resources like Dennis's book in the show notes. Thanks also to you for listening to Communicating Climate Change. You can find more episodes wherever you get your podcasts or by subscribing so you never miss out. You can find Communicating Climate Change on LinkedIn, too. And if you think the series would be of interest to friends or colleagues, why not point them in the right direction? Remember, each and every episode attempts to add to our toolkits to help us develop the knowledge and the urgency that we'll need for this pressing task. So be sure to stay tuned for more. For anything else, just head over to communicatingclimatechange.com. Until next time, take care.